Let me invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 5 this morning in your Bibles. Galatians chapter 5. Imagine with me a prisoner who had been behind bars for all of his adult life and then one day was set free. For him, it would not be easy to live in freedom because he had been imprisoned for most of his life. He would probably feel trapped. And so the tendency is to want to go back to his imprisonment where there is some sense of security and belonging and structure. And this is the way the Galatians are acting. They had been enslaved all of their lives, and then they had been set free, but they didn't know any other life than the life of slavery, the life of imprisonment. And so they wanted to go back to that. In fact, these Judaizers, these false teachers, opponents of Paul, were convincing them that they needed to go back to this imprisoning, uh, this, uh, this enslaving type of lifestyle. They hadn't fully... Uh, realized or or began to enjoy all the freedom that they had in Christ and what that meant. Of course, with their great privilege of being free, there comes with it great responsibility. And and therefore, they could not just live as however they wanted, as they pleased. They had to live as servants of their new master. No longer they enslaved to their own sin, but they are enslaved to their new master. Christ, and so they couldn't live however they wanted. People of Israel were like this, weren't they, when they were going throughout the wilderness. There were times when things would get tough, where they wouldn't have enough food or water, or they were being uh, challenged or approached by the Egyptians with their backs to the Red Sea, and what did they cry out to Moses to do for them? You know, they, they cry, why did you bring us here? Why did you bring us out in the wilderness to die? We would have rather lived and served and been enslaved in Egypt and died there. They didn't fully understand what their freedom meant, did they? But the people of uh, Galatia have really the same problem. They, they, they have been freed from this imprisoning lifestyle, this enslaving lifestyle, and yet they are now re-entrapping themselves into that former way of life. They needed to recognize that this freedom that comes through Christ actually means freedom from being enslaved to sin. And so Paul's message we saw last week at the end of, of our passage, which was chapter 5, verse 1, you need to live like you're free. You are free, so start living like it. Don't live like you're still enslaved, like you're still imprisoned and he's going to uh, he's going to expound upon that here in verses 2 through 12 that's the passage we'll look at this morning Galatians chapter 5 let me begin reading in verse 2 follow along with me as I do this is the word of God behold I Paul say to you that if you receive circumcision Christ will be of no benefit to you And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision 
nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from Him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Paul tells us here, and the Galatian believers as well, that, that to trust in our own performance is to abandon Christ. To trust in our own performances to abandon Christ. So we must guard ourselves from those who try to get us to trust in our own performance. Verses 2-4, through four, he says, to trust in our own performance is to abandon Christ. Notice Paul begins by showing how serious what he is about to say is. He says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you. He doesn't just say, Uh, behold, if you receive circumcision, he says, I, Paul, say to you. In verse 3, he says, I testify. Now, we're not exactly sure why Paul uh, emphasizes that he himself is writing here. Certainly, uh, it has to do with the seriousness of the situation. but, But perhaps he's also doing what he was doing at the beginning of the book, which is, emphasizing his apostolic authority that he was a genuine apostle. And so he's saying this is not coming from someone else, but but from a person who has actually seen the risen Lord. A person who has been commissioned by Christ to give out the Gospel. And so his apostolic authority stands in contrast to these Judaizers who were sucking all their theology out of their thumb. Right? Just kind of making it up as they go. This is not what the Scriptures teach. It doesn't teach that a person is saved by their works. No one during the time of the Law of Moses was ever saved by what they did. Paul's saying, that's what they're pointing you to. Look at me. I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so I say to you, and here's his message. There's two parts to it. First, Those who trust in their own performance, he's going to show that in verse 2 and verse 3, those people are abandoning Christ. So there's two parts to this one concept. Trusting in your own performance means to abandon Christ. Okay, let me show you the first part of that. Trusting in your own performance. He says this three times. Verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, then verse 3, And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision. And then verse 4, You who have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. So, in a couple of different ways, he basically states the same thing. If you are trusting in your own performance, he's going to tell us what that means, but this is what they have to avoid. Don't trust in your own performance. Performance. Notice verse 4 in the middle of the verse. You are seeking to be justified by the law. It's not that you are being justified by the law because you can't. You're trying to be justified by the law. And those who 
of you who are are going to find out that it is detrimental to your eternal destiny. Now, Paul is going to say that there's nothing inherently wrong with being circumcised. Look at verse 6 with me. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Okay, so there's nothing inherently wrong. That is, if a person is circumcised, therefore they're going to hell. He's not saying that. He's just saying that that doesn't have any bearing on whether a person is a believer or not. In fact, in Acts chapter 16, Paul urged Timothy to be circumcised in order not to be a stumbling block to the Jews because I think it was his mother, one of his parents was a Jew and the other was a Gentile. And his his recipients would have known that, that he was born into a a Jewish family, at least halfway. So And so therefore, he didn't want to be a stumbling block to the people to whom he spoke. And so he, Paul encouraged him to be uh, circumcised even later in life. But what Paul's saying here is when it comes to trying to earn merit, see, Timothy wasn't doing that. It's not what Timothy was doing. He wasn't earning merit for himself before God. He was simply trying to remove a stumbling block from his hearers. But Paul's saying, if you're trying to use it, this, which is representative of circumcision, which is representative of all of the Jewish customs and the Jewish traditions, if, if you're doing all those things in order to earn merit from God, you missed the point. You failed. It would be completely foolish of Gentiles to, who had no background in Judaism to be circumcised at this point. And so Paul makes it very clear that their performance is not this contributes nothing to their own merit before God. In fact, look at verse 1 because he shows that this is actually re-enslaving themselves. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. This is what Christ saves us from. He saves us from enslaving ourselves to the law. That is, to to any sorts of laws that we think we have to do in order to receive merit from God. Paul's saying, I want to remove you from that. That's what the Gospel does. Don't go back and re-enslave yourself. Put the yoke back on of slavery. Because those who do this, those who try to follow the law in one place to earn merit before God are responsible to keep the whole law. Notice what he says in verse 3 there. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision. It's not just that that you have to do, but that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Turn back to chapter 3, verse 10. We see this again. Chapter 3, verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. No one's justified by the works of the law. And so if you try, if you start down that path, I have to do this in order to earn merit before God, then what you're going to find is you have to keep the entire law because that's what God demands. The problem with this, of course, is that none of us can do this. Right? We start down the path of trying to earn merit before God with our performance 
And we find out that we can't do it. That's the purpose of the law. Chapter 3, verse 19. It was to show us our sin and to show us our need for someone else to do this in our place. So, what Paul's saying is, listen, Galatians, you can't pick and choose which commands you want to obey in order to earn merit before God. When you start doing that, in order to earn merit before God, you have to do all of them. And what you're going to find is you can't. And that's what the Gospel is supposed to do. It's supposed to point you to the fact that you can't. And Paul is so serious about them rejecting this idea that is taught by the Judaizers, this idea that they have to depend on their own performance, that he says this at the end of verse 2. Look at chapter 5. Verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, if you depend upon your own performance, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Look at verse 4. If you do this, he says in verse 3, you have been severed from Christ. And at the end of the verse, you have fallen from grace. So, if you receive circumcision, if you try to keep the whole law, if you try to seek to be justified by the law, he says, there three times, then he gives the response three times. Then you, then Christ is of no benefit to you. And verse four, you have been severed from Christ and you have fallen from grace. To trust in our own performance means to abandon Christ. These two things are opposites. They, they don't mix. You can't both trust in your own performance and trust in Christ. You do one or the other. And this is, by the way, is not a temporary separation, a temporary abandoning of Christ. Notice verse 4, you have been severed from Christ. And I like how the King James Version translates verse 2 at the end of the verse. It says, Christ is become of no effect to you. No value that's what happens when you trust in your own performance that, that Christ becomes of no value to you. And so we can't pick a happy balance like I think the Galatians were trying to do between trusting in Christ and trusting in our own performance. We do one or the other. And if we trust in our own performance, Paul says, we will have, verse 4, fallen from grace. Now, when he says severed from Christ, verse 4, and fallen from grace, he's not talking about losing our salvation. Like, we were once saved, and then we abandoned Christ and started trusting in our own performance, and then we were severed and we fell from grace. We lost our salvation. We know that's the fact. We know that that can't be true because of passages like John chapter 10 and Romans chapter 8, where Christ says, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. And no one can take them out of my Father's hand, right? Um, you, you can't be separated from God once you have been saved. But the evidence of whether you have been saved is if you continue on trusting in Christ. Because if you, if you do abandon Christ to, to trust in your own performance, you will have shown that you were never connected with Christ. And in that sense, you are severed from Him. You are fallen from grace. Now, why are these two pursuits of salvation so opposed to each other? Why can we not do both? Why can we not trust in Christ and trust in our own performance? And the answer comes in verses 5 and 6. 
The answer is that that salvation comes by faith alone. Salvation comes by faith alone. Verse 5, For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. True Christians live by faith. They are saved by faith and they live by faith. This is not the first time Paul has made this point. Notice in verse 5 that he shows that we who are saved have come to saving faith by faith. Verse 5. And then he says that those who are saved continue on in faith. Notice what it says at the end of verse 6. By faith, working through love. It's not simply a, a, a cognitive act where we just think about God and we agree to it, but we actually respond in verse 6. Our faith should respond with love or, or produce love in us. And so Paul's not. this is not the first time Paul said this in this book. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. Chapter 2, verse 16. I'm going to show you several passages where Paul says it's all about faith. It's not about your works. It's not about your performance. It's about your faith. Because faith ultimately is pointed at the the object of its faith, and that is Christ. Chapter 2, verse 16 reads, um, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Skip down to verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the implied answer is, you came to Christ, you received the Spirit. How? Not by the works of the law, because chapter 3, verse 16, no one can be justified by the works of the law. So you had to have heard it and, and responded to it by hearing with what? With faith. That's the answer. You came to Christ with by hearing with faith. But that's not the only thing. You still live that way. Look at verse 5. So then, does He who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? How is it that you continue on in your Christian life? Is it by performance? Or is it by hearing with faith? And that's, that's the point. Our, our initial... Uh, response to the Gospel ought to be hearing with faith and our ongoing response to to the Gospel ought to be as Christians hearing with faith. We continue to believe that Jesus Christ is enough. Not, okay, initially I had to believe and now that I'm living my life, I don't have to believe anymore. I have to do. No. Our our, Our salvation is always based, always, always, always based on Christ's finished work. We add nothing to our own salvation. Look at verse 9 of chapter 3. Verse 9. So, uh, 
let's look at verse 6 first. See how Abraham was was saved. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Okay, so the way that he had righteousness accounted to him was not by the works of the law, but through believing. Verse 9, So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer, not the doer, not the worker. Verse 11, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man, the one who is counted as righteous, shall live by faith. Verse 22, But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 26, For you are all sons of God. How? Through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul has been making this point over and over again. That our salvation is not based on our own performance, but it's based on our faith, on our belief in Jesus Christ and what He did. His performance. So what does this faith look like? Turn back to chapter 5, verse 5. What does this faith look like? Well, it looks like living in the Spirit. Notice we, we through the Spirit. And then it looks like hoping... An eternal righteousness. That is the final righteousness that will be credited to our account. We recognize that at salvation, judicially, we have righteousness credited to our account. But we aren't completely righteous when we come to Christ, right? Do you know any Christians that sin? Hopefully you do. Hopefully you're sitting next to one. Or, or obviously every single person and you are one, right? I am one. Christians sin. Why? Because we haven't become completely righteous, but we have this hope for this future eternal righteousness where sin will be completely eradicated from us, from our persons. If we live in the Spirit, we'll talk about this next week when we get to chapter, uh, at the end of the chapter, the fruit of the Spirit, actually two weeks from now. The fruit of the Spirit there, what that means, what it looks like. But, but he says in verse 5 here that we are waiting for the hope of this future eternal righteousness. And that's what faith is. It's believing in what we can't see right now, what we don't feel right now. We don't feel completely righteous, but we know that one day we will be completely righteous. When we see Him, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is, John says. So when you come to Christ, when I came to Christ, our external performance had absolutely no effect on our standing before God. Do you see that? Do you believe that? That our external performance had no effect on our standing before God. God never checked to see if you obeyed all of His laws or any of His laws to determine whether or not He would allow you to enter into heaven. He's not going to do that. He's not going to say, I need to look at your account. How did you do? That's not what He looks at. He looks at your faith. The only thing that He will accept apart from 100% obedience to His law, which we can't do, is faith in the One who was 100% obedient to Him. It's the only thing He will accept. But this faith, as the Reformers would say, is not alone. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, 
through the Scriptures alone, but, but our faith is never alone. That's what he says here at the end of verse 6. But faith working through love. And this is Paul's main point in chapters 5 and 6. Because he has been focusing so much on the grace that comes in salvation that our temptation might be to think, well, then it doesn't matter how I live at all. I can do whatever I want. This gives me a license to sin. I can be licentious. I can be immoral. It doesn't really matter. Paul says, no genuine saving faith works itself out in love. And this is what he's going to show that uh, really in the next two weeks when we look at the vices and virtues list, we'll see what it looks like to be a to be basically have fruit of the devil and then fruit of the Spirit. The true faith works itself out in obedience as is expressed in love. So just because God doesn't look at your performance for your salvation doesn't mean that your salvation is all that God is concerned about. He's concerned about more than just saving you from eternal fire. He also wants to transform you. He wants to transform me. This was the point that Dr. Compton made at the final summer preaching series that we had when he took us to James chapter 2. And he pointed out that faith without works is what? It's a dead faith, right? And that means that true saving faith, true justifying faith will result in works. Not in licentiousness. Not in a license to sin. So James says, in chapter 2, verse 26, that faith that doesn't result in works is a dead faith. It's not a genuine faith at all. Because the best evidence that I believe what God said about His Gospel is that I act upon it. That I actually am transformed. I'm complicit to the Spirit's leading. And so love here in verse 6 is not the basis of our faith. We need to be clear about this. Love is not the basis. That is our works. It's not the basis of our faith, why God accepts us, but it's the evidence of our faith. When we are genuinely saved, it will result in love. And that order is very important. We can't mix those up. Our obedience doesn't come before our faith. Our faith leads to our obedience. So, if... Abandoning Christ looks like trusting in our own performance. And if accepting Christ, being connected with Him, means believing with faith, which, which shows itself in obedience, then we must, verses 7-12, through we must guard ourselves against those who are trying to persuade us to trust in our own performance. We have to guard ourselves against those type of people. Look at verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? In chapter 3, verse 3, he said, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now living by the works of the law? You, you began so well. What happened? You were running well. As one commentator put it, it's as if someone you were running the race and someone came in and cut you off. And now they bumped you off course and now you're going off off the track. You're not on track anymore. Who, who did this? Paul says. Of course, he knows the answer. 
not that he doesn't know who did it. He knows it's these Judaizers. He's going to talk about them here in just a second. But he wants to show them how serious this is. Point, he wants to point them back to the place where they were running well. And then someone bumped them off course. In chapter 3, verse 1, he asks the question, Who bewitched you, you foolish Galatians? Who, who, who hypnotized you into thinking that your salvation had anything to do with you? not based on, on your performance. And so he's trying to show them that they need to watch out for these who lead them astray. The church should not be filled with strife and division. One of the things that Jesus prayed for in His prayer in John chapter 17 was that the church would be one as He and His Father are one. That's how serious He is about unity. But there are some things that we should not be unified over, I hope you understand. In fact, in order to get genuine unity, sometimes there has to be division. Like division over the Gospel. Over the true Gospel. And so, Paul here is saying that you need to be, in this case, divisive. Because they are leading you away from Christ. They are leading you away from the truth. And that's when you need to stand up for yourselves and stop following them. Stop being persuaded by them. That's the word he uses in verse 8. This persuasion of these Judaizers who are trying to get the Galatians to rely on their own performance. It's all about you. So just adopt these Jewish traditions. And then God will accept you. This persuasion did not come from, notice verse 8, the one who called you. It didn't come from God. God wasn't the one who bumped you off course. Paul is going to liken this in verse 9. Notice to leaven. So the little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. This is the same uh, saying that he uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. How does leaven work or yeast? Right? You put a little bit into a lump of dough and then you let the dough sit. And what happens? The yeast somehow spreads throughout the whole thing and allows the the lump of dough to rise. So if the leaven is the the uh, the persuasion of the Judaizers, then what's happening in the churches at Galatia? It's starting to spread. It's getting its tentacles all into into all these Galatian churches, and now they're starting to believe it. They have begun to rely on the law. And this is permeating all the churches. And he's saying you need to cut it off right now. Because those who rely on their performance, what happens to them? Remember? Crisis of no benefit to them. They're severed from Christ. They've fallen from grace. They've fallen from their opportunity to receive grace. Paul here shows some great love in verse by showing that despite despite the solemn warning, he he is concerned about them and he is hopeful for them. He says, I have confidence, verse 10, in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. I'm, I'm confident that you're going to make the right choice here, that now that you're presented with the truth, you're going to respond rightly. But to the one who led you astray... now. Up to this point, he's been talking about a whole group of people who've been leading them astray. 
here he points to one person seemingly at the end of verse 10. But the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. And so there's probably not only this whole group that's leading them astray, but apparently one group leader who had been taking them and moving them in the wrong direction. Instead of trusting more in Christ and, and believing that He is enough, trusting in their own performance, they're starting to head that way. And so the one that has led them astray is going to receive judgment. And Paul shows in verse 11 that he's not speaking to earn favor with other people. That was one of the arguments they had to defend himself against early in the book. Here he says in verse 11, But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? I don't agree with what they're teaching. Don't try to get them, don't try to believe that, that, that I agree with this, that receiving circumcision is right. Because if I were still preaching circumcision, then why do they persecute me? They would agree with me. That's the point of the question there. The fact that I'm still being persecuted proves that I preach salvation not by performance, our performance, but through the cross. Look at verse 11 at the end. Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. But that's what I've been preaching. I'm preaching the cross. And it does bring a stumbling block to those who would reject it. But for those who will accept it, it is the the cornerstone. Paul, in verse 12, uses some very stark language to show that he wishes these false teachers would completely abandon the Gospel. Not, Not try to straddle the fence here and say you do both. You trust Christ and you trust your performance. I wish they would go all the way and just it would be so clear that they have apostatized. I wish they would do that. Notice what he says here in verse 12. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Paul has already shown how serious he is about them abandoning the Gospel. And now he makes it even more abundantly clear. I wish those who are disturbing you when they're using the knife to circumcise themselves, would just go ahead and cut it off all the way. That's how serious he is about the Gospel. His point is, instead of trying to straddle the fence, I wish that they would just be like the pagans who are emasculated. That's how they are. And then we know, we know they're pagan priests and so you wouldn't follow them. But they're kind of right in the fence. Now, why would Paul be so crass? He would rather have them castrate themselves. His point is, I want to show you how serious what they're doing is. It's not that they have partially received Christ, and so we can agree with them, we can interact with them, we can have spiritual conversation and relationship with them. No. I wish they would go all the way and show themselves to be the heathens they really are. And so then you wouldn't be convinced by them. That's why he uses such stark language. He is concerned about the truth of the gospel. So how can you tell if you are living by law or grace? How can I tell if I'm living by law or grace? 
Well, there's a couple questions that we could ask ourselves in order to see if we're living by law or grace. Number one, what motivates us to serve God? What motivates you to serve God? Why do you come to church? Do you come because you feel you have to come in order to maintain a right standing before God? Are you doing it in order to appease God, to settle His, his uh, wrath or rage against you? How, how do you evaluate your standing before God? Is it based on your relationship with Christ or is it based on your performance? What you've done this week? Okay, I know that I'm accepted before God because I went to church. I did a lot of good things to people. I didn't really have an outburst of anger as, as I normally do. And so I know I'm accepted before God. Is that the basis of your acceptance before God? Sometimes it's easy for us to compare ourselves to other people. We have to be careful with doing this. Okay? I, I am accepted before God because I compare myself to this other person. We can always find someone who we think is accepted before God who lives more unrighteously than we do. We can always find those type of people. And so that's not the basis for which we are accepted before God. For example... We could look at Lot, who, without the New Testament record, we would think he was a pagan. He did not love God, but, but Peter tells us that he was a righteous man and that it burned in his soul every day that, that um, he had to live that way and with those people. And so we can point ourselves a lot and see all the wicked things. Or I mean, we find lots of characters in the book of Genesis who were believers, but they lived like the world at times. And we can point our, try to compare ourselves and say, oh, I've never done that. I've never been as bad as David who committed adultery and, a mur- and murder, so I must be okay before God. But you see, that's not what God's going to accept. That I was better than this person. What He's going to accept is, did we believe in His Redeemer? Did we believe in His Redeemer? Because Abraham... Lot was never saved because of what he did. Abraham was never saved because of what he did. No believer in history has been saved or ever will be saved based on what they did. But rather, based on what the Redeemer has done. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. Our salvation is always and will always be on the basis of Christ's finished work. And so we have to ask ourselves, is Christ enough? Is Christ enough? Was His perfect life, His satisfactory death, and His powerful resurrection and ascension, was it enough to satisfy God's demands for us? For our sins? Was it enough? If not, then we have to add something to it. We have to do something else. We have to add up some works to Christ. Because His work wasn't enough, then we have to do something else. And so here's a way we can tell if we're living by law or grace. Was Christ's work enough? If you're trusting in your own works to earn merit before God, 
then you are either self-deceived or in deep despair. You think you're okay before God when you really aren't. Or if you're trusting in your works, you're in deep despair because you recognize you can't make it. You can't do it. There's only one way to God. And it's through Jesus Christ. The warnings that we have here from Paul are meant to help preserve us. You may be shocked at times at some of the warnings that come from Scripture. You may be appalled at times at how stark the language is that is used. Like in Hebrews, like Paul uses here in verse 12. But if you're stirred in your heart to turn to Christ today more than you did before you came, that is the very purpose of those warnings. They're designed to keep us on the right track. They're designed for Christians. Remember who Paul is writing to? He's not writing to the Judaizers, is he? Hey, you guys stop doing that. He's writing to the Christians at Galatia. He calls them brethren. And that's who the warning is for this morning. It's for you and me who have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And those warnings at times are designed to shake us out of our complacency or our slow, uh, a slowly moving, uh, slow, slow, slow move towards our own performance. They're like the warning signs on the expressway. We start to head off and we're, we're actually exiting on an entrance ramp. It should we should know that's not the right way. We're actually going the wrong way. We need to turn around. And that should help us keep on the right path. And that's why the warnings are here. We all are susceptible to falling, aren't we? If you don't think that's the case, be careful that you don't fall. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Keep running well. Keep fixing your eyes on Christ. Keep responding to His grace with love and obedience. Those who apostatize will have trusted in their own works. But those who persevere are those who recognize every day, like the songwriter says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked here before your face, helpless, I cry out for grace. Foul. I am foul. Foul I too the the fountain cry, fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. We come completely helpless to the cross. We can't save ourselves. We can't add anything to the merit that we need to be accepted before God. It all comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And so now Paul is going to turn here in the, next, in the rest of the book to show that salvation does come by grace, but that doesn't mean that gives us a license to sin. That means that we need to live righteously because that's what Christ saved us to. We need to live in freedom because we are free. Don't re-enslave ourselves to sin. The beauty of the cross and the constant reminder of it as we remember it in days like this and when we have the Lord's Supper and things like that, it reminds us of our 
our need for Christ. That, that we are sinners depraved and deserve His wrath, the wrath of His Father. But, but Christ came and became the solution for our sin. It's not for us to do one more thing in order to be accepted before God. But Christ did it all. So I encourage you today to keep your confidence not in yourself or in your works, but in Jesus Christ. He alone can save you and He alone can keep you until the end. Let's pray. Father, the move towards relying upon our own works is so subtle at times. It's not till we head far down the road that we don't see the signs like we do today. But we're thankful for them, these warning signs to help get us back on the right path. There are people out there, surprisingly, who would love to see us turn from faith in Jesus Christ. And so there there are many people who are trying to persuade us to trust in ourselves and, and in our own performance. We're thankful for the reminder that shows us today through Your Word that Jesus Christ is enough. That our salvation and our ongoing sanctification depends not upon our works, but depends upon Your grace, upon the faith that You grant to us. And in our faith, we can't even take credit for it because even that comes from You. We can't even count it as a work because if it were a work, then no one... Uh, would be saved by faith. We would be saved by the law. So we're thankful for the examples that we have through Scripture. We're thankful for the clear coherence of the Old and the New Testament that shows that salvation was always by grace through faith, through the promised Redeemer. We just have a special extra revelation than the Old Testament saints did because we actually know who that person is. And we know what He did for us. That He actually died and, and was risen from the dead. And that now He lives to intercede for us and to, to go with us as we seek to do His mission. May help us to be worthy servants because we have been given a great privilege. We therefore have a great responsibility. We don't want to turn our relationship with Christ, our freedom from being enslaved to sin into a license to do more sin. How could we go on sinning so that grace will abound? It's not our goal. We want to reduce and eliminate sin in our lives. So help us to see it for what it is. Continue to trust in our Savior. Perhaps there is someone here this morning who doesn't know Jesus Christ, hasn't been able to experience the joy that we have. May You show them this today through Your Word. May Your Spirit work in them and minister to them the truth of the Gospel so that they will accept it and receive and enjoy the freedom of living apart from the enslavement of sin. Lord, help us to respond rightly this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.